Welcome to Delighting in the Trinity with Michael Reeves, brought to you by Union. This podcast brings you teaching and preaching from our archives, and you can find more resources, audio, video, and books at unionpublishing.org. Chapter 4 Relish Humility Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Philippians 2 verse 3 But the heart of true Christian integrity is humility. That might sound hollow and even ridiculous given all the pride and power politics that has sullied the name of Christianity in recent years. And it's not just the high-profile scandals. We evangelicals are people of the word. Learning is what we do. Yet, learning so easily promotes arrogance. Then there is our conviction that we have the truth, an attitude that easily collapses into the sort of pharisaical fault-finding that makes many run and seek refuge elsewhere. John Stott maintained that the supreme quality which the evangelical faith engenders, or should do, is humility. And yet, he admitted, evangelical people are often regarded as proud, vain, arrogant, and cocksure. What effect should the gospel have on us, though? He must increase, but I must decrease. John 3 verse 30 For in the gospel is revealed the glory of the living triune God, and in his light we creatures and sinners are exposed for the petty wretches we are. In Philippians 2, 1-13, we get to see the secret of humility and the heart of true ministry and leadership. See, first of all, what Paul is doing here. He holds out Christ to us that we might adore him. That's very clear in Paul's wording, in how he couches this description of Christ. He means to affect his readers. You're supposed to read this description of the great prince of heaven who humbles himself to the cross for us with the result that you might willingly bend the knee, that you might have this mind that was in him. That's what I call good theology. And that's the whole point of authentic Christian ministry. It is our joy to devote ourselves to learning. But as we fill our brains with the knowledge of Christ held out to us in Scripture, we do not seek simply to learn for the sake of learning. Instead, we fill our minds with the vision of Christ so that we might bow before him in adoration. There's a tiny little book I'd thoroughly recommend to you by Helmut Thielicke called A Little Exercise for Young Theologians. And in it, Thielicke says that young students of theology are prone to go through a rather nasty stage he calls theological puberty. It's the stage when, after a bit of study, you find yourself knowing more theology and Bible than any of your friends and family. Your knowledge outstrips anyone in a Bible study group, and you feel this rush of theological adrenaline. There's a wonderful word sometimes used to describe students in their second year of study. They're called sophomores. The word comes from two Greek words stitched together. Sophos, meaning wise, and moros, meaning foolish. Sophomores are wise fools. 
With a year's study under their belts, they feel like theological geniuses, more knowledgeable and intelligent than anyone else. But their little knowledge has misled them and puffed them up. They are not yet truly wise as they presume, but still harbor foolishness. If you detect that tendency to self-congratulation in yourself, be very careful. For that pride is the polar opposite of what characterizes Christ here in Philippians. He, the one with supreme power, does not grasp, but rather pours himself out for the blessing of others. That is how Christ defines the nature of authentic ministry. It means you cannot serve Christ truly in an un-Christ-like way. The Puritans like to talk about the tincture or atmosphere around a minister. This was a wise concern for a quality easily missed. They saw that it is not just the minister's abilities and competence that define his ministry. His character creates a particular atmosphere around him that people can detect, even if they can't quite put their finger on it. His kindness, his pride, his patience, his irritability, each gives off a particular aroma that can set the tone of his church quite as much as his teaching. Of all those qualities, pride is especially malignant. Those of us who are called to theological pursuits may rightly crave theological strength, but the source of that strength makes a difference. A man strong in himself can rarely proclaim a suffering saviour. His strength means he can't acknowledge the depth of Christ's mercy to him. His brilliance gets in the way of Christ's. The first work of grace in the sinner is a pulling down of the old man and a demolition of his vaunting and deluded self-confidence and self-love. All our natural avoidance of guilt, all the blame-shifting and excuses, all the mistakes were made but not by me, is ended. We are driven out of ourselves that we might trust only in Christ and not on ourselves anymore. It is the stripping that allows us to be clothed with real beauty and righteousness. It is the enlightenment that makes us see our need for cleansing. The knowledge of Christ is given to us not simply to slosh around in our heads and certainly not to puff us up, but to transform our heart and character. The ultimate end of all our knowing is that we might love him and become more like him. If you ignore this and during your study pay mere lip service to the importance of your own growth in Christ-likeness, if you effectively use your education simply to become more dominant, more impressive, it would probably be best if you stopped studying instead, for you will be modeling to the world a pride that at root is satanic, not the way of Christ. And that brings us on to the second thing we see here. Paul gives us this description of Christ in order to transform us. Specifically, he wants us to share Christ's humility, chapter 2, verse 5. This exhortation is for every Christian, but it is especially pertinent for those who are given power, for those who get exalted. And within the church, it is often those with theological training who get exalted. 
Whatever it is you're going to do when you finish your studies or gain more theological knowledge, almost certainly you'll be given more power, more authority. People will seek to put you on a pedestal. Will you let them? Success is hugely seductive. If you pursue success, you can usually make a name for yourself if you try hard enough, if you grasp for it and put yourself forward. But the story of the church is tragically littered with cautionary tales of fantastically gifted leaders who have crashed because of their lack of character. These are leaders who started out with a blazing heart and love for Christ and who were therefore given opportunity, given praise, given power. But eventually, it was proven that they didn't have the character to handle it. Friends, thank you for listening to Delighting in the Trinity. We want to let you know about two new resources by Michael Reeves. The first is Authentic Ministry, Serving from the Heart. Authentic ministry is not simply a matter of mastering professional skills or of endlessly pouring oneself out in works of service. Rather, it springs from a joyful union with the heart of Christ. The second resource is Right with God, a little book on the center ground of the Christian faith, justification by faith. For anyone who does not know Christ or is lacking confidence in their salvation, the Bible has good news of comfort and joy. You can order your copy today at unionpublishing.org. If you are deepening in your knowledge of the scriptures and Christian history and doctrine, then you can reasonably expect to be given opportunities and power and praise. The question is not, will this happen? The question is, when it does happen, will you have developed the Christ-like servant-heartedness to handle however much you are given? And the more you are given, the more humility you will need if you are not to become a power abuser, if you are not to fall. The more gifted you are, the more power and talent you have, the more good you may find you can do in the world, but also the more harm you can do. And the path that you will follow depends upon whose mind you have. Will you follow your own mind? Or do you have the mind of Christ Jesus, who did not grasp his rightful equality with God, but emptied himself? Great good or great harm depends on this, especially if you recognize yourself as naturally ambitious. Put pride to death before disaster happens, whether that be slow and subtle or swift and catastrophic. Tragically, I have to tell you that pride and the abuses of power that flow from it are everywhere in the leadership of the church today. Self-service, power games, manipulation, and the damage done to Christ's people by unchrist-like leaders is incalculable. This may seem obvious from where you sit. All of us have lamented the precipitous and public falls of once-respected church leaders. But the actions and attitudes that precede those falls are not as easily detectable. It's sometimes easy when you're young and you don't have that power to critique overbearing, pompous or dictatorial leaders. But what we see on the surface isn't the root of the problem. 
a deeper trajectory gets set over the years. The rot sets in before anyone can see it. And the same thing can happen within each of us. So fix your eyes on Christ, our beautiful and definitive leader. See how attractive is his humility. And resolve now, friends, to be humble, Christ-like leaders. Let love for his humble generosity be your sword against your pride. Pride leads us to use other people, causing significant damage to lives and dishonoring the name of Christ across the world. Don't mishear me. I'm not saying you should run away from power and opportunity for fear of how you might abuse it. No. Work, learn, become theologically accomplished, and push with all your might to make Christ known. Seize the opportunities you're given, but watch very carefully for what will be a subtle, subtle shift into working for your own glory. At this point, you may stop and wonder, but isn't the bride of Christ, his church, supposed to have a grand vision of reformation? How does humility fit with a healthy desire to make the name of Christ known? This is exactly the point. It is Christ whom we are to make much of. Our focus must not be on what people think of us, their comments, critiques, or opinions, but on what God does. Surely we are to listen to those around us and to consider their point of view. Shepherds of the flock know their flocks intimately. But our boasting comes, not in what others recognize that we have achieved, but in the cross. The hinge of Philippians 2 is verse 5. But verses 3 and 4 provide the context that orient us. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul states here his concern not just for individual hearts, but for the body of Christ. And this is a two-way street. First, if you don't have Christ's servant mentality, then instead of looking to the interests of others, you will look only to your own. This breeds a detrimental culture of one-upmanship and rivalry. And here, theological students need to watch for the dangers of the essay marking system. Marking work is supposed to help you assess how you're doing, to encourage striving towards excellent good and important aims, but in our sin, we can use it to foster unhealthy competition between us, or simply to build a foundation for pride. Don't go there. Seek to do excellently, but not to outdo brothers and sisters. No, let's develop together a culture of looking to the interests of others. Let's fight together to have a warm fellowship characterized by caring for each other through thick and through thin, a band of brothers and sisters who will then stick together in the struggles that come for the glory of Christ. If we do that, imagine the wider fellowship that will ripple outward and strengthen the leadership of the churches in the generation to come. And the other side to this matter of community is this. Pride spoils community, but community can also help quell pride. 
we can support one another in this. One of the best things I took away from my time at college was a pair of friendships. These two friends and I still meet up three times a year and ask each other how we're doing spiritually. These conversations have been a lifeline, an oasis. I would love to see every one of you find such friends. Cultivate warm friendships while you study. Have others around you who love you enough to tell you when they see your heart turning. We've seen that Paul calls us to share Christ's humility, verses 5 to 11, and that together we can help one another in that, verses 3 to 4. Let's consider now the edges of the passage, which address the question of how. How does Paul think we can change? How do we exchange our natural, lethal pride and selfish ambition for a heart that is Christ-like? Paul starts verse 1 like this. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, then... Do you see what he's teaching here? Personal transformation begins and ends with the knowledge of Christ. It arises from the comfort and encouragement of knowing him. We don't naturally have the ability to pick ourselves up and make ourselves like Christ. It's when the Spirit opens our eyes to appreciate Christ that we want to be like him. For we see how his loving humility is so much more beautiful than our petty self-service. To know Christ is to delight in him. So, where do you find true delight? If you delight in yourself, you substitute what is false for what is true. Delighting in self is a form of self-deception. But when we delight in God, pride falls away as we fall at his feet. That's why Paul describes Christ as he does, and that's his encouragement to us about how to change. Look to Christ. See how much more satisfying he is and how marvelous are his ways, and you will be weaned off pride. In verse 12, Paul calls this working out your salvation. This happens in a lesser way when you meet a truly humble, Christ-like older Christian leader. Isn't that a moving experience? You can't help but be affected by it. And as you comprehend the beauty of this life, deep down you want to be like that as well. One person's humility inspires another. How much more is this the case when we set our eyes on Christ? This is nowhere more true than with the sight of Christ humbling himself on the cross. At the foot of the cross, our sin is revealed. We are killed. God's grace is revealed. We're brought to new life. We only enjoy grace when we recognize what sinners we are. As soon as you vainly forget how great a sinner you are, God's grace will cease to amaze you. This is a good litmus test of your spiritual health. Are you still amazed by his grace? Once you've tasted God's grace, you don't want to forget your sinfulness entirely because your sinfulness accentuates his mercy. At the cross, we develop honesty. When we stray from the cross, vanity and deceitfulness creep back in. But when we return to the cross, 
We don't want to pretend to be perfect or better than we are. We want the grace that is only for failures. At the cross, we develop graciousness. Having received grace, we become gracious. There we grow compassion for others in their stumbling. And by crushing our deluded pride, the cross enables us to allow others to flourish. When I'm standing at the foot of the cross, I don't have to keep others down or compete. I want their gifts to shine. With this I will close. Power is given to us that we might serve others. And so, if I might sound for a moment like Oliver Cromwell, I beseech you in the bowels of Christ, seek to grow in Christ. And to do that, keep close to the cross. You've been listening to Delighting in the Trinity with Michael Reeves, brought to you by Union. Union is devoted to growing leaders and growing churches. Our School of Theology equips leaders for ministry. Union Publishing supplies them and their churches with quality theological resources and books. Union Mission supports and financially helps church planting and revitalisation. And Newton House Oxford invests in the next generation of theologians and scholars. Our vision is to see leaders and their churches the world over reformed and renewed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out about our courses and learning communities around the world, to buy union books, to discover support for your church plant, or to become a friend of union and support our ministry, visit www.viola.gy.